A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We begin with our vocal exercises. Before we start going off track, we like to um, we like to try and sing, try to harmonize. Sounds more like going off key. Yeah, and we're in. Today's guest is Joe Kelly. He's part of Man of Action, an amazing creative group that puts out such fabulous cartoons as Ben 10, Ultimate Spider-Man, and... This Sunday, you can listen to, uh, excuse me, you can watch The Avengers, their new cartoon. It's going to be amazing. It doesn't come out till this summer, but they're doing a special sneak peek uh, this Sunday, May 26th. Check your local listings. Marvel's The Avengers. I believe it's called Marvel's The Avengers, Avengers Assemble. Please forgive me if I don't get the word right. I don't have my local listings in front of me. Joe Kelly is an inspiration. If you've met Joe, if you've talked to Joe, if you've met him at a comic convention, he is an awesomely creative human being that will make you feel nice about the fact you're not writing enough. Yeah. He writes and writes. Make you feel very cool about it. He just recently did something where he challenged himself called 1930. We talk about that for a little bit. And... It just makes you wonder why you're not part of Men of Action. I felt like after this podcast, I was like, I'm going to get so much writing done. I'm so inspired. And then back to my normal life. Yep. <laughs> I'm the same way. Yeah. It's tough. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to watch TV tonight. I'm going to sit here and open up this laptop and not look at the normal websites that end in ORN. Nope. I'm going to actually write something. Yeah. It's like whenever I go to see a show now, it's the same thing. I sit there in the back of the club going... All right, you know what? Fuck it. I don't have to be a big fucking huge rock star. I'm just gonna I'm gonna start another band just for fun. I'm gonna do it tomorrow, man. I'm gonna make some calls. Then someone's like, "Do you have an amp?" And you're like, "Ugh, find an amp. I gotta <laughs> rent a car. I gotta find somewhere to go. Like, I'm just gonna take a nap." But I you don't have even to... want to rehearse. I don't even want to pick up my guitar. Do you feel like you have to find the people first before you do that? Yeah, but this is I'm talking about you know sitting in the back of the club, half drunk. Thinking, being of course, half drunk and do it, but like if you're really inspired to do it, you do it. Like I find that daunting. Like I was just listening to here at Rubber Tracks, a band practicing and going through the the notes and rudiments and scales, and I'm thinking like, God, how, this is why I'm not in a band. I'm how droning and awful that sounds to me. <laughs> like how how monotonous. <laughs> like how can you get like all four of you guys in a room? Like all right, we're gonna take it again. One, two, three. I'm like just shoot me in the face. Yeah. Give me the finished product. Let me go see the show and judge you. <laughs> That's what I want. 
And that's what I have. It's been a while. It's fun, though. You know, you get some beers, you sit around with your guitars. Let's do it! (laughs) When you come back, we're going to have a fully written, fully produced track. It's going off track! Today's guest on Going Off Track, Mr. Joseph Kelly of Man of Action, of comic book everything, animation, television, uh, teaching. You have a very, very, very in-depth story. (laughs) So, trust me. I've been doing my research. If and you the funny, say so. Here's the funny thing about it. Um, I grew up in the age of when you read comics, you didn't look at who, who wrote them. You didn't even look, mm-hmm. barely look at who drew them as a kid. Older I get, I'm in akin to writers. And that's, that's what I'm into. My brother is a diehard animation fan. Mm-hmm. Like, this is his jam. And if there's a um, DC animated movie coming out, he's all over it. He has it pre-ordered. He has it ready. So he calls me up right around the time you and I met at San Diego Comic-Con saying, hey, uh, Superman and the Elite's coming out on DVD. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. We sit down to watch. And I'm like, I just talked to that dude. <laughs> he wrote that and came up. This is sick. Oh, that's cool. I was, oh, it was one of those fun things where, you know, mm-hmm. you meet someone and then you just really get embroiled in their work. Right. It was right. really cool. Awesome. Oh, that's good. It's I'm very glad cool. he liked it. So where did it start with you with writing comics and how did you get into it? Yeah, I, I was the same way as far as like when I read comics, I never paid attention to who did what. I was just like, oh, I love Spider-Man and, you know, that's all I need to know. I was given a bunch of comics by an uncle. It was just like, here's all my old crap. And so my like comics education ran from, you know, uh, superhero stuff to war books to witching hour and horror books, which the it all kind of stuck with me. Um, and then professionally i had read books for a while then i couldn't afford them so i stopped reading them then i read them again in college borrowing it from somebody uh graphic novels and then um i was uh i got out of binghamton and had a useless degree uh in philosophy Ah. instead of art and theater which was my intended degree but sort of accidentally maybe did not do all that well you veered away from art and theater into philosophy uh you could complete it in one year and i wanted to get out did you go to suny yeah. Okay. Yep. And I wanted to, uh, I wanted to get out in the four years. It was very important to me. So I was taking like you know one hundred and one and advanced brain expansion at the same time. And uh, but I got out and went to work for my brother in law, my current brother in law, who at the time was my uh, my girlfriend's brother, and um, he's a commercial producer. So I was a PA for a year, and uh, you know carried all my heavy things and learned a lot about teamsters like we were just talking about and um, yeah carry this is pretty much yeah. what you get as a pa <laughs> exactly <laughs> carry this uh where's my where's my snacks mm-hmm. but it was um it, you know i learned a lot about production and i sort of hit that fork in the road of uh my i, I love doing the prop stuff i like i was a sculptor was actually my background um when i was not goofing off too much so i really wanted to go into special effects um so the prop guys were sort of the way to get in. So I was going to either be a prop PA or at that time apply to NYU for the master's program in uh, dramatic writing, which is you know specific to just screenwriting and playwriting at the time. Now it's TV as well. So I got in there and that was sort of, you know, and I wrote this screenplay in like, I don't even know, a couple of weeks <laughs> on a Smith Corona, like one line at a time. I didn't even have a computer. You know, it was like one of these crazy things. But I got in on this insane program and then i was there for a couple of years and while i was there marvel comics editors um were looking for new talent so they came to nyu and they were looking you know they came to that our program specifically um 
And, and you know, I, I always tell the story that the letter, the letter from Marvel was sitting on the director's desk at the time. And her secretary and I used to talk about comics and she knew that I like comics. And it was how she learned to read. You know, as an older lady, she learned to read through Superman. And um, she said, you know, there's a letter from Marvel sitting on a desk and I think it might wind up in the garbage. So maybe you should, you know, look at it. So, you know. Larceny was my entryway into into <laughs> comics. Like you know, so Perfect. I, I, I stole the letter and I read it, and they That's were talking. It's a federal offense. It, yeah, <laughs> you're exactly. screwed. I put it back, um, so I only borrow larcened it. Uh, I don't know said a word, uh, but I, I saw what it was, and then I basically said, "Hey, you know, I heard Marvel wants to do something with us. I know comics, and I volunteered to run this program. Um, it got nicknamed the Stanhattan Project." Uh, it's a fellow named James Felder and Mark Powers uh, with the two editors. And that was it. They they basically ran this course, you know, eight, eight nine-week course about how they do comics at Marvel. Started with scripting and then built eventually into mm-hmm. how would you pitch a whole series. And um, I got work based on dialogue, really. Uh, and that was my first thing. They had a somebody was um, a little late on a book or had to jump off on the dialoguing phase. And I jumped in and that was it. How was old were you at the time? Uh, 20, but what, how old are you in college? So it was 97, I guess. So, or 96 is when I really started, uh, in comics. So I was probably 24, 23, something wow. like that. Yeah. And, um, not like I know how old I am, uh, 25, let's say that. So, but my last year of grad school, I was going to grad school and working there to pay for it, getting married and then writing the x-men like all those things happened at the same time so one of a, those sounds really cool to yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> i'll let uh, you can meet my wife and you tell her which, which is the cool one uh but that was it it was all it all happened kind of at once because that first year of writing it was like going from fill-ins to uh like marvel not marvel presents uh marvel fanfare to a 2099 book then yeah. i got deadpool and daredevil <clears throat> at the same time Deadpool kind of became my cornerstone of work, and mm-hmm. then that led me to the X-Men a year later. This is just like, as, as a guy who grew up reading comics and loving it, like all of a sudden at 24, you're like, oh, I'm writing, I'm writing the X-Men. Yeah, That's insane. It was, it was definitely bizarre. And I'm very ignorant of the process of what goes into writing a comic. Like, like, and, and I think it's mostly on purpose because i enjoyed the magic of it right i mean i've 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 read you know uh, scott mcleod's understanding comics and that's as in depth as i've gotten that's super in depth that yeah. that to me is too in depth that thing is hardcore I, I don't even know if i finished that whole book i i really dug it yeah it, it's awesome but it's yeah. it's dense i mean you really have to pay attention but it doesn't dive into like you know how to how to plot and how to make dialogue right. and it, it's not it doesn't seem as cohesive as like writing a screenplay like you don't have to worry about your a story and your b story and that mm-hmm. kind of stuff and putting right. together comics seems like a much more different medium so you took this class had you had any idea and what went into writing a comic no not, on- not at all as a matter of fact i have um i still have the rejection letters from the submissions that i sent to dc i wanted to you know when they used to do elseworlds so I had an Elseworld story I wanted to do, and I had sent it to, like, Mike Carlin and Paul Levitz and all these guys. And I got very nice letters back saying thank you, but no thank you. What was uh, the idea? Uh, or, or, or are you still going to do it at some point? I'm sure I will never do it. Uh, <laughs> but it was – I, I do still like it. It basically was that um, instead of being wealthy, uh, Bruce Wayne, after his parents get killed, uh, was taken in by Gordon. So he gets raised to be a cop. And then Dick Grayson sort of becomes the untethered – Batman. So it's sort of Bruce Wayne versus 
Batman cop versus darker Batman and what would happen. I like it. Do it, it immediately. Yes, I will get <laughs> well, on it right pe- away. Oh, wait, I don't own those guys. I can't do that. <laughs> people always forget that like Batman does have a power. It's unlimited wealth. Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Batman, so, we're broke. Yeah, it'd be a little tougher. Nah, not as good. Yeah. Oh, I dig that. That's great. That would have been fun. But I, but I, you know, learned a little bit, a lot about pitching, certainly, subsequent to that. But um, the program I was in, you know, dramatic writing specifically, I mean, it's, it's about storytelling. It's about the behind-the-scenes kind of writing that goes into a script, whether it's for a screenplay or a comic or a play. And, um, and since I was a screenwriting concentrate, uh, it was all visual storytelling. So it was immediately applicable to comics. Um, then you learn some technical stuff, you know, that, that is helpful, but there's no like standard comic format, uh, for a script. Like there, there are in TV, especially Mm -hmm. TV or, or film. Um, it's pretty loose and, and even to, for a long time, it was like Marvel style versus DC style. You know, it was like uh, full script versus plot. Yeah. Um, and in the beginning, I guess I, I sort of wrote plot with dialogue cues because I thought it was really important that they knew what I wanted to say. I couldn't just be like, oh, now they have an argument about this. I had to sort of choreograph it. And this is literally dealing with the artist. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And and again, the beauty of writing for comics is you're not restrained by that page a minute um, kind of thing that you are in, a, in other media. So... Yeah, you know, Alan Moore notoriously, it's like, here's a 60-page script for your 20-page comic because mm-hmm. I want to describe every, you know, nuance and, and tchotchke sitting on a, yes. on a shelf or whatever. But so they can be as long or as short as you need them to be. And it is about that communication with the artist. And that's what's so fun about it, really. I mean, I I love the animation. And obviously, I love all other media that we're involved in. But comics is that direct you know, it's you, your artist, and and if you get a good thing going, it's really magical. I, I do love it. Now, you said this thing we have going. Um, if I didn't mention it before, Man of Action is your collective initiative um, group. <laughs> Occasionally company. <laughs> company. When, we, when we act mature, company. it's a company. That's the fascinating thing is, is the company. Now, um, uh, I heard uh, Joe Casey, mm-hmm. one, one, one of the four. Right. Uh, he said that you basically got started that you guys just didn't want to walk around Comic Con. Yes. Is that how Man <laughs> of Action came to be? That's one of, one of our many origin stories. Is that San Diego being so massive, uh, we we're like, you know, if we had a booth, we'd have a place to sit. So why don't we just get a booth? And that was that was definitely part of our part of our origin story. Um, we uh, and it's it's uh, Steve Siegel yeah. and Duncan Rulo are the other two guys and. Um, we all met on X-Men in various capacities. They all kind of knew each other already. They all live in L.A. Mm-hmm. And um, so they were they were friends in, in various capacities. And then uh, we all met. We're working on X-Men. Then we all migrated to Superman uh, and then decided, you know, why not make it official and, and sort of try to do some work together? We already bat ideas around all the time. It would be, you know, why not make it a living? And then we, we were asked to kind of as soon as we had the company going, we got approached to do a video game, do some short films, and it's just kind of like, oh, this sort of works. So you, you're working on comics, you meet these guys, make it an official group, because when you find people you work with, hold on to them. Right. Uh, you like, rather. Um, <clears throat> you say you get approached to do a video game, like, were these video games, like, based on comics, based on comic characters? Yeah, that particular okay. one was um, X-Men Legends. It was an Activision, uh, you know, and it, they'd actually gone to Joe, and Joe was like, well, I... I don't know how to write a 800-page video game because they were really shooting for, like, Final Fantasy level. They wanted, like, an 80-hour 
gameplay, which ended up being quite heavily truncated. But um, but we wrote this ridiculously long. I think it's like five or six hundred pages, whatever we wrote. I mean, it was like because it's not just a story; it's all the incidental dialogue and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it was hilarious. We were just like, well, it looks like something to me, you know. And we just figured it out. And uh, I like the game came out good. Five hundred, six hundred pages, legitimately. Oh yeah, yeah. Wow. And it could be more. Like, I could be underestimating it. But we divvied it up. We'd each take an act or we'd break up scenes. And that's sort of how we learned our system of when we would sort of write on something together. Um, trust the guys, pass it off, you know, have a second guy take a look at it. I mean, we sort of work in, in various weird combinations depending on what the project is. Now, are you all writers or is anybody uh, an artist? Duncan is an artist. Yeah. Uh we all, the rest of us all believe that we have some art talent uh, and then occasionally, you know, uh, fake it. Uh, Steve's, Steve's actually a great designer. Um, I can draw a little bit. Uh, Joe can draw a little bit. But Duncan's a, a proper artist. He's a, a really super talented guy. So from the video game, is that, like, how did you get involved with Cartoon Network? Uh, well, we had our, our booth with our chairs, uh, <laughs> so we could sit at San Diego and it was another right place at the right time kind of scenario. Um, Matt Senreich, who, uh, is one of the co-creators of Robot Chicken, yes. um, he, uh, he was kind of basically starting to get that going. So he was meeting people at Warner Brothers and there was an exec, an exec who was looking again for new people. He felt like he was meeting the same people all the time for, you know, for cartoon pitches, um, his name is Sam Register, and he uh, approached us, you know, and, and was introduced to us by Matt. And uh, we said, all right, um, there are four of us, so we'll give you 20 pitches in 20 minutes. And it's, you know, the, one of those, like, Hollywoody kind of sounding things. So he's like, sounds great. Come in. And then we had to, of course, come up with 20 pitches, and uh, which we did. And, um, and it was great because he's the kind of guy that knows exactly what he wants. So I was still at that point not, like, flying out all the time. Um, I was always the guy on the phone. And uh, so it was just round robin. It was like pitch, 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 pitch. And if he didn't like it, he was just like, nope. And we go, okay, here's the next one. And that was it. And, uh, and I mean, I had stuff like werewolves and planes. I mean, it was like really crazy stuff. But one of those was ultimately Ben 10. And um, I wish I could say it was the 10th one. That would not be true. Mm. Uh, it would make a nice story. But, it's, uh, but that, was, that was it. And would, I mean, you say you had 20 pitches where... Was there a strategy going in? Like, all right, this is the one we really want to do, so we'll layer it in the middle. So when he gets yeah. to it. <laughs> I wish we were that smart. No, now we now we're a little better about that. Uh, you put the sort of weak. It's like the the herd, and then the the gazelles come by, and the weak ones get taken down by the lions. <laughs> you throw them out first. Yeah, but no, we we just uh, it was sort of what would you like to do, and what would you like to see, and they were, they ran the gamut from stuff that we cooked up quick to stuff that we had already had in our pocket. Like Ben really came from a a power that Duncan wanted to do in the X-Men and never did. So, you know, it was just, and it was a much more like the original concept was um, somebody who could trade places with themselves from an alternate universe. So you would swap spots with you where the earth was, you know, 10 times the gravity. So you'd come out all super stocky and it was a cool idea, but it was for a kid show a little complicated. And that's why I went through the development process and became a little more streamlined. How long was the development? It was like two years. Um, which was cool because, you know, uh, Sam Sam always believed in it, so he kept pushing for it, our executive. And the consumer products guys were like, you have organic characters. You have organic toys that are going to come out of the show. It makes sense to to just figure it out. 
um, which actually for us was a pretty big lesson on the business part of it. Like you said, you don't want to see how comics are really made. It's like you don't want to know how the sausage is made all the time. Uh, it's definitely the same way with animation. I mean, we've learned a lot about sort of the business of it. And some of that is a little like the 10-year-old and you has to go in the corner and not look. But, um, you know, it, it was just kind of sad. But, but you can also choose to take that and turn it into a strength. So, you know, when we sit down and if Man of Action is trying to cook up a cartoon now, you know, we keep it in our brain, but we go, how do you do it organically so it doesn't feel like underwater jungle fighting Batman? You know, like, we don't need that toy. You know, like, how do we come up with the toys that are going to make sense? And we like, I like toys, you know, like, we're all, you know, geeks in, in that regard, too. So it's like, what's going to be cool um, for us, for a kid, you know, for everybody, so that we're not feeling like, oh, okay, this is lame. We just had to cook up the blank insert, you know, generic toy here. Uh, well, I just saw some of the Ben 10 stuff at Toy Fair that syncs up with the DVD. That's crazy, right? It's bonkers. <laughs> it's like this wristband, and, and it like it, something will happen on the DVD that you're watching on your DVD player, and they will talk to each other. Really? Yeah. yeah. It's ridiculous. It's completely insane. They Speaking have, of talking, Brad, can you like shut up a little bit? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'm babbling. Here. Yeah. No, I'm enthralled, too. I understand about... 30% of what you guys are saying, but what I understand is super interesting. <laughs> I did want to ask a question. I mean, um, I'm just curious, like, what does a script for a video game, yeah, I was not wondering to go off subject, too. but what does it sound like? How does it read? Like, Well, for, for us, I, I've done just two. So, you know, we haven't done a ton of them. But the first one, it was uh, you do the cut scenes, and those look like a proper, you know, film script. Right. And then the rest of it is all this incidental dialogue and in-gameplay dialogue. And so it's sort of like, uh, you know, when, when, when player reaches checkpoint blank, you know, and that sort of is explained usually then with the designers, they'll tell you what you're looking for. It triggers this dialogue, and then it's sort of a branching dialogue that... But were you just writing dialogue, or were you actually writing, like, scene descriptions? Both. Things? I mean, it would depend, because we broke down the whole, like, for Legends, we broke down a whole story. We were with the design team of the game, and, you know, they wanted a big sort of five-act structure and stuff. So we had the whole plot and what was going to happen. So first the plot gets approved, and, you know, just like any other project. And then it was breaking down those acts into levels, and then each level had to have its own scenes, and some of them are cut scenes, and some of them are play scenes. Right. Um then I, I uh, wrote uh, Darksiders uh, with Joe Matarera, and um, that was more just cutscenes. Even though we did talk a lot about the story, once we would get to sort of the gameplay part, um, I would write, like, uh, if there was a big boss you know, interaction, I would write that. Okay. Or if there was a, a key character you had to interact with, I'd write those scenes. But I wouldn't necessarily have to write all the incidental dialogue or, you know... Um, you know what happens as war is mowing down you know bad guys or whatever so it's um that was a little more straightforward but that that's why the, the x-men one was so huge because there was a lot of branching dialogue and what if you talk to this group and what if you don't talk to that group and they wanted a very heavily populated world i again a lot of it didn't get used i actually think that of the five acts it turned into like a three act kind of thing because it's i mean it's a lot you know right. like you know when they when they sit down to bang out like a final fantasy you know that people are putting a lot of time, they're taking a long time, uh, a lot of money. And I think that my experience and what I've heard is that a lot of people, you know, they're shooting for the moon and then they go, okay, well, wait a second, we actually got to put this thing right. out. Yeah, not um, everybody's going to be Bioshock. Yeah, 
Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is insane. Yeah, I'm playing Infinite right now, and I'm loving it. I don't so even good. play video games. I just watch the trailer for it. Yeah. Because over at Geek, and it's just like, wh- I don't even... You watch this thing, and you're like, what movie am I watching? Oh, this is a video game? Oh, crap. Some of the new Bioshock? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's good. Bonkers. It's really... I, I, I just beat uh, Tomb Raider a couple of weeks ago, and that oh. was really fun. Um, that The new one. It was great. And... Um, the story was great and it looked beautiful and all that stuff. But then I was waiting on Bioshock and uh, it's really disturbing because it's got this this messed up social commentary, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, I read and about it's, that. It's, uh, you're just, you're playing and then all of a sudden this like mega racist thing will happen and you're just like, oh, this I'm so not ready for this in my video game. <laughs> uh, but it's, it's, it's a really great game so far. So uh, I'll see how it goes. Now the... You also do for you also do Ultimate Spider-Man. It's mm-hmm. for Disney. Yeah, it's on Disney. So obviously, mm-hmm. Disney owns it. Um, so I read. Were you a fan of the Ultimate Spider-Man the comic? That- uh, I mean, you know, I like all the stuff that Brian's done. I didn't read all that stuff though, mm-hmm. to be honest. Yeah. yeah, we when we came in, it was kind of uh, some of the show had been broken down already. Okay, um, they knew they wanted to have a full cast, and Spidey was going to be part of Shield, so. Man of Action was brought in to then, you know, help shape that a little bit and then break the stories kind of from that point. So at this point, you guys are known like, oh, we've had some success with Ben 10. Hey, let's get him back in the comic book world. Right. And Jeff Loeb is, you know, head of yep. Marvel TV mm-hmm. and we've worked with him and been friends with him for a really long time. So uh, so he gave us that opportunity. And we had done a couple of episodes of, of the end of uh, Avengers or Smightiest Heroes. Mm-hmm. So that sort of was our introduction to the Marvel Universe uh, animated guys. And then that helped get us a gig. When you're ready, when you're ready for these franchises um, that are have such a crazy history, I mean, do you have to be aware of like the whole chronology, like so you don't like contradict something that happened like 30 years ago or something, or like how aware do you have to be of that when you're writing for now? Well, it depends. In comics, uh, it really depends on what the editorial mandates are. Sometimes they're like, ah, screw all that stuff, and sometimes they're they're very focused on, well, we're going to reinvigorate blank. So uh, adapt it or make it work for today. You know, usually that's the general tone is like, how do you take what worked and make it work for today? How do you make Candor Bottle City cool or General Zod or something like that? But um, I've been very lucky in that I've not ever been asked in comics to have to learn 30 years of continuity or anything like that. As a matter of fact, when I got hired on Superman, um, Eddie Braganza was the editor. He... uh, he was like, well, what do you know about Superman? I said, honestly, I read some comics when I was young. So I like, you know, Crypto the Superdog and stuff like that. And Bizarro, I like all the weird stuff because those are the ones I got from my uncle. Um, and then uh, and the movie. And he said, perfect. That's fine. That's all. I don't want you to be a continuity guy. Um, and it was good. You know, it was better for the tone of the book because we had other people who were more continuity heavy because there were like, you know, four Superman books at the time. Um, for the cartoons, you had the luxury of making your own continuity but now, because of the way Marvel works, uh, which I think is is brilliant in there, uh, you know, for them and, and the way they strategize, they know the movies do well. They interlink all the movies. Then it's like, how can we interlink the cartoons to the movies in a way that feels, you know, proper? I mean, you can't, unfortunately, take Avengers and make it a cartoon as is because it's not appropriate for, you know, for kids TV and all that kind of stuff. Um, and there are things you need to do to tweak you know, to make it uh, kid-friendly. Um, but there are connections, and there's, you know, it is a shared universe, you know, so, like, the movies are Bible to some degree. Um, 
so it it really depends kind of it's uh it's it's usually very clear when you start the gig and occasionally becomes fluid um but you know they they just want to know that you're telling a good story so if there's something cool that you can pluck from 50 years ago nobody really cares like there's some there's great superman stuff um that goes i mean yesterday i guess was officially the 75th birthday right which is really cool um from cleveland oh yeah that's right (laughs) yeah are you from cleveland i'm from cleveland yes okay yes so we don't get a lot of stuff to brag about yeah (laughs) but you get superman yeah that's not bad that's all right not bad at all not bad i'll take it uh but yeah there's always so there's always something you could take i mean i'm definitely one of these guys that genuinely believes you know there's not bad characters like you can find something in it that's cool and there are a lot of guys in comics that are that excel at that i mean like when uh jeff johns stepped onto the flash i don't know if you're reading Mm -hmm. that stuff when he was doing it you know he just took that whole rogues gallery which are guys like you know captain cold and boomerang and captain boomerang and all stuff like guys kite man he made kite man terrifying you know like because he makes kites out of human skin or whatever he did like he just went nuts with that stuff so you can always take that stuff in the past and make it cool so that's uh that's what we try to do when we can and again when we adapt it for the kids uh it's how do you give us something that's a little new something they understand uh you don't want it to be continuity heavy so that they don't have you know they they don't tune out basically seems like with marvel it's the one place where they don't worry about continuity since they don't revamp, you know, they don't retcon anything. Right, right. So. Yeah, which is nice. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, it's it's pretty cool, actually. I mean, they've only recently, I think, started doing stuff where, like, Spidey being shut down. Yeah. And eventually it would be the number one, I guess, you know, whatever. But it was it was very cool to be like, oh, Thor's up to 800 or whatever, or Spidey hits 800. You know, that that's really cool. I And I respect that personally. I understand why from a marketing point of mm-hmm. view, sometimes I have to do these things, but oh, yeah. new people coming in. Yeah. So when you, when, um, like, I know, I know that Marvel, um, like, like they own everything, like whatever character you work with, that's theirs. Mm-hmm. And even characters that you come up with, um, DC, is it similar? with that yeah so it's, it's always work for hire okay you know there's um when you create a new character for somebody uh if it's a character they think is going to have legs it's sort of like a new character agreement they try to work something out with you ahead of time but okay. yeah you're you pretty much are signed off for work for hire and that's why ultimately the work that we do outside of animation is for ourselves i mean we mm-hmm. publish all our comics through image um Mostly. I mean, one, there's one or two uh, that are at other companies, but Image is awesome. I mean, they're just an incredible bunch of people to work with. They're putting out really amazing books, and um, you have complete creative freedom, and uh, and these are things that we own, mm-hmm. you know? So I couldn't, I could never have done, like, an I Kill Giants at, at Marvel or DC, or, um, and if I was going to do kind of a superhero-y thing, I'd want to have it you know, know that I had the rights to, know that I had control over it. Was that kind of, was, was image like the paradigm for man of action? Like, yeah, in some ways there were a lot of, you know, thoughtful comparisons. So in the beginning of, you know, look what those guys did and couldn't we do something like that? And, um, it, you know, except we didn't have a million dollars or any giant name talent. <laughs> so, uh, it was a little bit different, uh, in that regard, but no, the, the inspiration of what those guys did, uh, for sure, I think influence a, a whole generation of people, you know, who just who, who don't want to play by those those same rules, you know. And it used to, and it, we've we've definitely found a shift when we talk to people who are interested in comics or new to comics or want to get in. It, it seems that's the goal. Like everybody wants to write Batman or mm-hmm. wants to write Spidey or yeah. something like that. But 
it's kind of inverted and you start to see it now happening with with the new crop of writers who've come up that they go there first and they cut their teeth on those characters and then as soon as they can they're doing creator own books they might keep that stuff on the side because it certainly pays and all that kind of good stuff but um you want to do your own you know and and you want to go out there and and cook up whatever the hunger games or whatever you know you're not going to do it sitting there um and and it's and you know i love my time at those companies has been incredible you know like uh i i still love deadpool you know like that was that was major for me and i grew to love superman in a way that you know i saw that new trailer for the the man of steel and i was just like oh the new know. one kind of i went that was one on oh, okay yeah exactly because i'd watched a couple before and this one i went oh yeah all right yeah i was very very no, pumped by the new one. you seen yeah. it no i haven't it's oh, that's intense it's so good and it's and, you're, and at the end of it you're like okay this is different this is cool and yeah and you don't go hey russell crowe you go oh Cool. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it feels like it's going to really get the heart of that character too. Like it's mm -hmm. the other ones just kind of gave the impression of like, Oh, we're just, we're going for the dark Superman. Yeah. There's a lot of real hopeful moments and emotional moments. There's so much nice little bit of acting in the, in the trailer. It's really cool. But you know, so I, I love that stuff and I, I would never ever bash on it and I would certainly do it again. I'm, mm -hmm. It's not like I would never go back to that kind of work, but um, my bandwidth is, limited and i'm you know i'm a slow writer sometimes i'm good on a deadline if it's you know it's with tv it's like well you got to have an episode so it's got to get done with my own work sometimes i'm a little slow and um but i love i love doing my own characters can you talk about the 90 and 30 yeah <laughs> yeah the 90 and 30 so the guys always uh, bust my chops about being on twitter all the time um i love twitter i mean i really do i, I like it much more than facebook i just find it easier and more immediate and, and all stuff so I had decided uh, there was a little bit of a gap of, of work coming up. And so I thought, you know, I I like this stuff I'm working on, you know, the creator-owned books. Um, but I would like to just challenge myself to try to kick out something new and sort of quick and just not overthink it. Because a lot of times I get mired down in, uh, I don't know, trying to make an outline perfect or something like that. And I, I just heard somebody talking the other night that we're actually genetically programmed that if you overthink something, you'll dumb it down and uh and actually choose like safe routes instead of you know more dangerous more challenging more creative routes uh, which i thought was pretty interesting so i was like yeah, i'm just going to sort of write this thing off the cuff it was an idea i had and so and and to make it like a thing not like i'll put it out there on twitter that i'm doing it and just try to keep a daily tally so it's you know it's 90 pages in 30 days um and and also you know the hope is to sort of maybe show some of the, somebody out there who's new that if you just chip at something a little bit at a time, it's, you know, three pages of a screenplay. If you have an idea for a scene, I mean, I, that's 20 minutes to me. I mean, it doesn't have to be four hours. You know, uh, if you're writing prose, obviously it's going to be a little bit longer, but that was the challenge. And I just put it out there and a couple of people have jumped on, which is cool, you know, and, and it's nice to see them talk to each other and be excited and you can do it and all that kind of business. So it's a little bit of, you know, cheerleading, but it was more to wrap myself out too. Like if I was like the last couple of days have been a little challenging. So today I was like, well, I don't know if I'm getting stuff written today. Uh, I got to go back to look at my characters. I'm kind of lost, you know, I've, I'm in the weeds. Um, and so I put that out there, you know, because again, I think one of the cool things about comics in general is that we have such a low level of transparency or high level of transparency to the audience. Like 
unlike anything else, like people don't just like talk to J.J. Abrams, mm-hmm. you know, like my emails on the Internet, like people write me all the time, you know, and, and at a comic book convention, people just come up to you and talk to you. So it just seemed like a, a further extension of that, of like, yeah, you guys check do that. that at your booth still because now your booth is massive and yeah. you have people come by and you get and they all just sit there and hang out like 24 seven. It's really cool. It was so funny. I went to I don't know very much about comics, but I went to Comic-Con with Stephen a couple years ago and mm-hmm. I was blew my mind because Stephen knows so much about music. He was like, oh, that's the anchor for this. And I'm like, how do you know what these people look like? Like every single person. It was incredible. I think we sh- I think we uh, elbowed Bendis when he walked by. Um, <laughs> accidentally. <laughs> but it was cool. What, it's interesting you say about how um, not being safe when you're writing something. It makes me think of, you know, like if you're in a band and you're young and you're hmm. and you're doing stuff and people are like, oh, those, great, those first albums were great because you didn't know any better and you really were throwing everything against the wall right then you get a little older you get a little more careful and you do overthink it yeah yeah mm-hmm. it's really true and yeah. the, and the concept it was uh i think it was that guy malcolm gladwell was talking it was like on a npr last night radio lab i don't know if you have listened it's mm-hmm. a very cool show they they do really weird science stuff um and it's put like in sort of a uh, this american life kind of style it's, it's very it's cool like a dumbed down version of this podcast yeah <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly but they were talking it was an experiment that was that was run where they just let people come in and pick posters, students, you know, and the posters were impressionist art or the little cat hanging, you know, that says hanging there, baby kind of thing. And um, they basically either let you pick whatever you want or they would say you can pick whatever you want, but just do us a favor and write down why. And the people who had to think about it picked the cat almost all the time. And then six months later when they called up, the people who didn't think about it and made a gut choice still had the posters hanging up, and the people who had to think about it didn't. They or they didn't care about it anymore. They didn't know why. So it was like the the act of forcing yourself to go. Why do I like that? Actually, was sending them down a safer path. And it it's definitely true. Like I, when you look back at you know, like Ben Ten, um, we're very proud of, and but I'm I'm happy to admit any like any big success, it's it's an anomaly. I mean, we we did Generator X a couple of years later. It was not as big. Uh, we got, you know, 52 episodes out of it, but it didn't become a, you know, $3 billion, whatever the hell Cartoon Network says Ben 10 makes. Um, it didn't become that industry. But I never, I can't sit there and go, how do we do the next Ben 10? Like, you drive yourself crazy, you know. Um, and it's it's just never been my style. It's always been, you know, what would be fun? What would be, what do I want to do today? And, uh, and sometimes I'm good at it. And when I'm not, uh, I have people who call me on it. You know, I just actually there's a artist who I've been dying to work with for a very long time, and we had met up at a at a comic convention, and he finally was like, "Yeah, let's try and do something." You know, and I taught I pitched him this kind of like surreal western thing I wanted to do for a while. It's perfect for his art style and really cool. So I wrote this outline, and it was really by the time it was done, he was like, "Well, it's a good story, but the, where's the surreal part?" And I, I, I had written the most like straight ahead revenge Western story. And I was like, you know what? I got to go back and redo it. And I haven't, I've, I've pecked at it since, but I didn't nail it. And it was exactly that. I was like, wow, I took, I took the safe route. Um, after having spent, you know, literally the last three years, like how do you do these very structured plots so that the episode makes sense so that the kids can follow it and all this kind of stuff. Um, so it was a really good lesson to kind of take a step back and be like, okay, you got to have your cartoon brain and leave that over here. 
and that's for you know corporate work and then where's the where's the joe kelly that does you know whatever kind of crazy crap he wants and and that's again part of the 1930 thing was just to all right i'm writing this weird ghost story i'm gonna just you know bang it out and and i'll fix it in may like worry about it later you know uh it's critical i think otherwise you can get you can get stale pretty fast very interesting when i was in high school i took a a creative writing course um mostly just to schluff off my first period you know (laughs) um and uh but we had to read something by stephen king i had never read anything by stephen king Mm -hmm. before at the time and and um it was a story about baseball Mm. it was about his kids playing baseball and their little league doing really well and at the end of it was a thing on writing. And Stephen King said, just write and don't stop yourself from writing. If you don't know a word, just write in something bullshitty. Don't stop to look it up and come back. Just mm, keep going mm-hmm. until you're done. Right. <laughs> it's like, and I remember at the time going, that just sounds like work. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's what we were talking about earlier, sort of when what you love becomes your job. Like, right. I'm a full-time writer and it's like... I love creative writing, but when I'm sitting in front of my computer writing for work all day, the last thing I want to do is I'm going to go sit in front of my computer and write. Yeah. Like, how does that kind of work for you? Like, how do you kind of keep things fresh and make it not feel like it's this thing you really want to do, but as soon as you have to do it, you're like, oh, I don't want to do this. No, it's so totally true. I, the first thing I do is I flip the day. You know, I'm lucky enough that I can work from home. I don't have to go anywhere. So my stuff has to come first. I mean, it's kind of like the money thing of like, you got to pay yourself first, right? You got to put money away in savings and all that kind of good stuff you get told when you're growing up. And for me, it's the same on the creative level. Like if I can wake up and do my thing, even if it's only for like an hour and a half, I feel so much better. And then if I have to spend the rest of the day doing work for somebody else, that's okay. Um, that really helps me keep it that's fresh. awesome i never thought of doing that yeah I, I always wait till the end of the day and then i'm too tired to do my own stuff well that's because we inherently feel guilty about doing our own work like yes. it's this really bad thing that you know, it's the writer's guilt or the creative person's guilt of like well it's not real none of this stuff is real because i'm not getting paid for it and then you know then when you sit down and you go well yeah but if i make this non-real stuff it actually could lead to all these great wonderful things not even necessarily money but i mean just being fulfilled i mean i had a I have a friend who works at ILM, uh, and uh, he's a, a character designer and does all this great stuff. And he knew I used to sculpt. So he was like, have you ever tried you know, digital sculpting? And I was like, no, I don't have time for that. And there's this uh, free program called Sculptress you can, you can get. And I started messing around with it. And that became my hour a day in, for a while, for about a month, where I was just like messing around with digital sculpting. And I'm not going to ever do anything with it. It was just just play and be creative for a little bit and and it was weird i had to like and i'd have to talk myself into it i have to be like you are not dicking around this is important it keeps you creative you know but you feel like oh i've got to pay the bills first right and honestly it's the other way around you know now uh how did i kill giants come about um i kill giants uh it was a combination of a couple things um i had a I had my daughter. I had, had I have two children. Um, my daughter was, uh, boy, I started writing it a long time ago. Um, so she was about six or seven at the time and, uh, and a really fun, you know, uh, vivacious kid and real precocious and stuff. And around the same time, my dad had, uh, found out he had, he was diabetic. So, he had to start taking care of himself and he did a shitty job of it. So he wound up in the hospital and, and after a very long process ended up losing his leg. Um, so it was kind of like the first time I ever had to think about my parents being sick. 
So, and I was a new, relatively new parent. So it was kind of like, oh, gee, I wonder what's there, you know, like how does, how does this stuff come together and how would my daughter handle it, you know, if, if she was on the track that she's on now, maybe as a little bit older and still that precocious kind of, you know, fun, weird kid. Um, and then one day I was literally, you know, took, took my dad to physical therapy and he was, you know, doing what he was doing. And I outlined the whole thing in like an hour. I mean, I, I knew that, it's, which is how I tend to like to do it. I write two ways. I either get the whole idea and it's like, like lightning and it's all done or uh, it's little pearls and I'm just kind of waiting and eventually there's a whole, you know, necklace set up. But it's, um, that was how, that was how Giants came to be. And, you know, for anybody who hasn't read, read the book, I don't want to give away the whole thing, but I mean, it's really, um, it's really about how a, a child is trying to deal with some stuff at home and it, how it manifests in a fantasy. But, um, but is it fantasy or is it real? Is the real you know, when, question? When you come up with an idea for anything, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the art in Giants is insane, mm-hmm. and it runs the gamut of, uh, you know, almost you know that cartoony to to intense, and I mean, even down to the um, the dialogue and the, and the way it's. Uh, Forgive me, so I don't know the inside. But like when you you know plot out the the balloons and everything, mm-hmm. um, did you have an artist in mind? Did you have to go through people? Yeah, it actually took a really long time. I wrote I wrote Giants, uh, kind of the same way I'm doing the thing I'm writing now. A couple mornings, you know, uh, not a couple. I mean, it's three months. It took me three months to write it because um, I didn't know how long it was, and I was just writing the story out. I was just following that outline and, and expanding it daily, and um, I had the the six issues or seven it turned into had him done sort of at the same time also wrote it as a screenplay because it was something I, I wanted to I, I loved the story so much I felt like it would work kind of in any venue um and I had a uh I actually went through a bunch of artists who I contacted who for one reason or another couldn't do it um and you know they're friends of mine so I, I don't want to call anybody out but I mean you know it'd be guys who were really good incredibly good at drawing kids like barbara was going to be 10 years old at one point you know she was going to be much younger so somebody who could really handle like okay the acting and and what this kid would look like and um then there were you know other people who just had an underground style i really loved and i was just like you know oh you guys would be perfect for this and uh and for one reason or another it just didn't happen and then i met ken uh i was at a, a convention in spain and we were sitting next to each other and he um he just had this like newly published book of of his work from school. Basically, he was really relatively new, and um, he could draw in like all these different styles. And I was like, "Would you be interested in maybe working together?" And he was so funny because he—I think he was like twenty-three or something. He was playing like super coy, you know. He's just like, "Well, you know, when you get back home, you talk to me about it." <laughs> yeah, and then I find out he's like huge fan of steampunk and like totally knew my work and stuff. But um, but. You know, he said, I'd love to do this, but, uh, you know, I couldn't pay him a a respectable, livable page rate, but he was going to own the book with me. So he's like, could I do it in a, in a manga style? And I'd never pictured it that way. So I was like, could you just show me what you mean? Because to me, that was going to look like, you know, Dragon Ball Z or something, which would have been a no. And then I saw his, his loose, he's got this unbelievable loose line style that looks like he just whipped it out. And it's effortless, but he's an, he's a meticulous designer. He's actually like, he designed all of Barbara's house. I have blueprints for her house. I have the school. I have all this stuff. I mean, it took him like months just to design the book before he ever drew a page. Um, 
And once he started drawing her, and he drew her with the bunny ears, which was not in the original script. And um, I was like, what's up with the ears? And he said, well, you described her as like, my daughter had curly hair. And he said, you described her as like a curly redhead. And it's probably going to be a black and white book. And every time I draw it, it looks bad. It just looks like spaghetti on top of some kid's head. So I figured she's, she's kind of weird. And it's kind of a manga thing of, you know, the animal ears. So could she just wear hats and ears and we'll just never explain it. I was like, that's done. You're, you're the, you're the guy, you know, and it, was, and it was perfect. And it was, it was this incredible, like that, you know, I, I'm obviously super proud of Giants and I lived with it for a long time, but Ken, Ken brought it to life. No question. I mean, he just, he got everything we, you know, I wanted to do with the book. Um, so I was very, very lucky to, to get hold it's of. It's a great story. And it, any plans on making it into a film? Because that thing just like breathes terribly. I, I hope so. Trying, trying, and getting close in in cool ways. Uh, nothing, unfortunately, I can I can say. But it's uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, it's been definitely a dream of mine for a long time. Um, and it's funny you mentioned Terry Gilliam. I mean, you know, Fisher King is like one of my all time yeah. favorite movies, and I love what he does. And and that kind of magic realism of, you know, is it is it a fantasy? Is it real? Is it that kind of stuff heavily influences a lot, a lot of things I do, actually. Um, and so I'm always uh, Terry Gilliam's definitely one of my spiritual, you know, godfather kind of types. Yeah, I, I, I love his stuff. So uh, but yeah, I would uh, I'm hoping um, fingers crossed. But I, I did write a script and I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. It came out pretty good. I'm curious. I mean, what kind of drives you? Because the reason I ask is I was interviewing this guy frank turner earlier this week and i was asking him what inspires him and i was like what inspires you because there's only like seven notes right and like these same words and it's like it's all kind of been done right and you know how long is our race even going to exist what keeps you from getting like <laughs> do you get nihilist and all stuff and he was like i never feel that way and i was like i'm just like projecting my weird bullshit onto this <laughs> poor guy and like it was in, i was listening back to the interview and i was like oh my god like i can't believe this i mean but i'm always I can get in these sort of ruts, and mm-hmm. I feel like you have so many cool creative projects going on. I mean, what keeps you kind of inspired <laughs> and kind of creating stuff, I guess? Oh, gosh. I, I wish I had a good cynical answer loaded. <laughs> uh, it, you know, it really does depend. I mean, I, I've been very lucky. I mean, I, I've been lucky enough to, uh, you know, to have been a working writer right out of grad school. Um, so now it's coming up on uh, 16 years, 17 years of, of writing. And... Um, I mean, it's fun, you know, like at the end of the day, it, I mean, I'm always, you know, I have a lot of gratitude and a lot of humility about it. I mean, I've just been very lucky to get to do what I do, but it, and as far as what actually drives me, you know, it, it kind of changes from day to day. Like, you know, you mentioned the Superman versus the elite movie like that, that story was written 100% from a place of anger, like completely just anger driven. I read something in in the authority that I was offended by, and I was like, "Fuck that! I want to write something. I want to defend Superman. Like I'm pissed about that." Um, you know, Giants came from this place of uh, working through sort of daddy issues and and love and and my daughter and all this kind of stuff. Um, you know, Four Eyes, uh, which is another book I love, even though I haven't kept up with it uh, as well as I should have. The um, it was just an idea. I just had an image in my head of a kid with a Tommy gun and no shoes and a dragon. You know, I just knew it was like dragons fighting in Brooklyn in the thirties. Like I, I just thought that would be cool. Um, and, it, and it's definitely hard. Like I, I, do, I don't want to romanticize it cause I definitely have many days where I don't do anything, you know, where I just sit there and bang my head and, 
hate hate life as well and and the, the other guys will tell you I'm pretty dark and nihilistic. I mean, it really, you know, it's like, oh, it's not a Joe Kelly story unless there's a dead baby on a stick somewhere, you know. It's like, it's like they're not all that dark, um, but some of, some of them are pretty dark. Um, but you are the one who lives on the East Coast. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the New York state of mind is a dark state of mind. But uh, you know, and the, and then there's like a, a book like Bad Dog, which is supposed to just be. It was supposed to just be the raunchy, fun, like, uh, you know, Preacher was a massively influential book for me. Um, I love Garth. Uh, you know, I love anything he writes. So when I was in college, Preacher came out when I was at grad school. So I was like, oh, this is what comics can be. And oh, my God, I want to write this. So Bad Dog was kind of going to be my Preacher. And uh, and it's really turned into like this like therapy book for myself like all of the he really does not like this main character does not like people at all and has these monologues about just how shitty people are and stuff and the story he's just constantly getting kicked in the balls like it's just a i abuse the hell out of that character like it is really a character that uh will go through a lot of hell and so i don't know you know it's it's just uh channeling those things um and and pulling them out and and believing that somebody wants to read them, I guess that's the other thing. Maybe whether or not it's it's delusional or, or not, you know the um, the the two books that uh fr- that my close friends and enemies like to bust my chops about uh, are uh, Bang Tango and Engine Head. These are the two things I did that were sort of the least read books I did, and um, I'm proud of both those books. I love those books. Because I never sit down and go like, how is this going to sell 40,000 copies? How is it going to sell 100,000 copies? I just go, somebody's going to read this book and somebody's going to like it. And if it's 10 people, it's 10 people. I don't really care. You know, like, because I, I don't know, I, I, you guys talk a lot about music I know on the show. And th- there are musicians that I love that I don't, people don't know. And I don't think that they're famous or rich or anything like that. And uh, that's they still do it. So I'm like, well, I guess I should do it too. Or, or books that I've read, you know, um, that nobody's heard of. They're not, you know, big book list, you know, 50 shades of gray. Everybody knows of pop culture stuff, uh, you know, but those are the things that mean something to me. So I just try to emulate that. And, uh, in, in my work, I guess, you know, and even though I babbled on about it for five minutes, it's hard to articulate sort of why you get up every day and do something creative. Uh, it's, it's cause I don't know any other way, I guess. Um, and and have just been lucky enough to to be able to do it. You know, it's a habit, yes. I just I just read the untold story of Marvel Comics, uh-huh. which ruined me. Mm. <laughs> to like the whole the way the whole industry is run, it was like that's kind of why I don't like you get nervous about the inside how right. it works because I was right. like, wait, that book that I enjoyed was just made that way because they thought it would sell a lot, right? <laughs> but then you know you want people's you want people to be successful and you want. Um, you know, art to thrive. And at the end of the day, you are buying, you know, art, you know, and it's a story and it's cool. And I was lucky enough to have parents who literally said, as long as he's reading, we don't care. Yeah, there you go. And uh, that was exciting. But the actual, like, putting the the comic together of this is what the characters are saying. This is was... um, uh, I interviewed uh, Brian Michael Bennis once, and he said something about it. when you hear the voices in your head, mm-hmm. when you can hear the characters talking to each other, then you know you have something. Mm-hmm. But then how the hell do you get that to an artist to paper? Right, right. And then how do you plot, like you said, Alan Moore picks, he'll write a whole big description thing about a panel. 
sometimes doesn't that take away from the artist mm-hmm. you've chosen to work with? You want to trust them. Right. So it just seems like this uh, bizarre happening that's on purpose. Right. <laughs> no, it's a cool, it's, it's a, it's definitely a tightrope act. And, and because it's such a intimate relationship, it's not quite the same as, you know, when, when you hand over a film script or certainly an animation, uh, animation script is touched by literally hundreds of people. Cause by the time to, to get all those, those, uh, images drawn, you know, forget about it. Uh, but the, the relationship between the writer and artist is, on a comic is really cool. And, um, I try, I, I've, throughout my career written in different styles as far as um you know like i said i used to write more of a plot style which was a little bit more open uh now my scripts look pretty much like film scripts but it's always with the understanding for the artist and you know my artists who want to call up and say call a bullshit feel free but i i don't think i think i give them a lot of latitude you know and it's always i don't say like this panel has to be unless i have a real reason you know um make it a widescreen panel, make, you know, super close up on the eyes. I mean, that's, that's when I'm acting as a director and I feel like I have storytelling things I really need to have happen. Um, other than that, I just try to make sure that, that the images that I need are there and then they can kind of do what they want. And it's the coolest thing when you get something back that either a is exactly what you wanted or b totally different, but works. And that, that's a weird, it's a trust thing. Um, I've been. I can't even say how lucky I am. I mean, like I've. I really. I could count on like, like one hand the number of artists that I've worked with where I didn't have that click. You know, and uh, you know, and Duncan's one of those guys. I mean, when Duncan and I would would I would write and he would draw. That's really how we met. We met on a Juggernaut one shot. It was like I was see, I was seeing things that were in my head on the page. You know, it was just like that's insane. Or Pasquale Ferry is one of the first guys I ever worked with. Mm-hmm. You know, and. He always hit it out of the park for me. He's just a super talented guy. You know, Ken. And Ken would come back to me. He'd, he'd be one of the guys that would come back to me with new stuff. And um, I didn't really like this, so I tried it this way. Your way is better. You know, it's <laughs> awesome. Um, Max uh, Max Fiumara, who draws Four Eyes, people literally didn't know that there were two. It's, it's really a cool compliment. They're like, it doesn't seem like two people are working on this. It seems like you have one brain. And, uh, and it is, it's, I get the pages back from Max and it's like, if I could draw it, that's what it would have looked like. You know, it's really cool. Um, it's, uh, yeah. So it's, it's trust and it's trust that you sort of, you can tell really in a page or two what, if, if you're on the same wavelength for me, at least. If you're on the same page. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Boom. Exactly. <laughs> but then like thinking about, you know, like all, all, like everything that happens and i learned this from understanding comics like everything that happens in a comic happens in the gutter between the panels mm-hmm. you know that's right. where the reader's brain puts it together mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know batman winds up next panel is him getting punched well we didn't see the punch happen but right. we know it's there right, right so does it get that detailed and descriptive when you write and give it to yeah for me it does okay yeah for me i'm i'm definitely picking those images that i think are important i, I was just thinking about a scene uh you know that i, I just wrote for four eyes and um, for me, the acting, the acting of the characters is so important. And I think that's kind of like what Brian was saying about hearing the voices. So I, I'm really, I always gravitate towards artists who can handle, you know, what I, the acting it's, it's the facial expressions. It's really conveying emotion. And, and I've been kind of obsessed lately about like directing and, and stuff like that. So I'm looking at composition and, uh, looking at films that I love and why frames are set up a certain way. So I'm conveying that to the artist um, 
and asking them to do certain things for storytelling purposes, you know, and, and really, sometimes they're really specific, you know, sometimes it'll be like the guy's coming in from the left side of the panel and I have a reason for that or, um, why it needs to be a close up uh, as opposed to just letting it go. And then, and once in a while, like a lot of guys work with thumbnails too. So if it's not quite right, I can tweak it and say, Hey, do you mind redoing it this way? And that's cool. I was going to ask, like you get a finished piece and then just have to go. No, that has happened, but not very often. (laughs) And uh, yeah, usually, especially if it's somebody, you know, the crazy thing about comics too, is you're working with people all over the globe. So sometimes there's a language barrier, like all the guys, I mean, Ken, Ken speaks like five languages. So Ken's, Ken's an anomaly, but, um, his his uh, dad's Japanese. His mom is Spanish. He uh, speaks French, so he's four. He's French, English, Spanish, and one of those Japanese. He's a Renaissance man. Jerks. Yeah, but he. Um, but you know, so once in a while you'll get a, a language issue. Uh, so those guys will you know just thumbnail just in case because in the translation it might come out a little kooky. But um, yeah, I've just been super lucky with those guys. And then, like I said, when you get something that you didn't expect and, and it sort of forces you to think differently, then that's a home run. That's really cool. When you did Elite, was that, I mean, forgive me for not remembering the credits correctly, but did it was it was it story by Joe Kelly or screenplay by Joe Kelly? Did you write that? Yeah, I wrote, you wrote yeah. that whole thing, that mm-hmm. anime. So um, when, you do, when you guys do Ben 10 or uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, is that most of the Man of Action guys working together? Was this like your big solo animated thing yeah i wrote yeah i wrote um the elite by myself um because i and i had written the comic originally yes. obviously uh but the um yeah the way we work in man of action um as a team like on spidey and and uh, avengers assemble it's um we co-write all the episodes so we uh with writers, you know, with with other writers. So we have writers that we really like and that we've gotten to work with and know over the years. So we we work with those guys as often as we can. And it's, um, well, we do the outlines. We all get together. We get in a room. Um, sometime, on Spidey, it would be with Bendis and Paul Dini and Joe Quesada. And oh, it wow. was, you know, it was great. I mean, it was like you'd have a great time. Um, cook up stories, get it up on a whiteboard. Then we'd go off and write the outlines, um, hand that outline to a writer uh, they would give us a first draft, and then we'd kind of start tweaking from there. And then depending on on the draft, the writer, the story, whether it was an easy one or a hard one, um, wh- whichever sort of guy is sort of the point man on that episode might do a heavy rewrite, might do a light rewrite. You know, it, it would sort of depend. But So that's why we'd <clears throat> co-write all those things. But Elite was all you. Yeah, Elite, Elite was all me. That's kind of cool because you wrote the comic, which was – I had no idea. I, I Everybody – whatever I talked to people about it or read about it, it was, um, you know, it was like, oh, this is a reaction to the authority. I didn't know it was something that annoyed you. You <laughs> made you write it. <laughs> it was, you know, it was funny because I, I was a fan of the, uh, of the was, authority. Was it, was it a Warren Ellis issue of the authority? I think it was actually into uh, Mark's run, actually. Okay. And, um, and it was very specifically this, uh, it was a, an Avengers versus JLA monologue, uh, analog bit. Mm-hmm. And, and, if I remember it correctly, because it was a long time ago, uh, basically the Captain America character uh, raped the Superman character, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. And that wasn't even the part that really bugged me as bad as it was. There was something in it in the story that made me feel that if you liked this kind of stuff, if you like superheroes, you were an idiot. That was sort of where it came from. And that, you know, because it was Apollo was the one who got, you know, hurt. Mm-hmm. So it was really like, if you're that naive, 
then, you know, screw you and the horse you rode in on and, you know, you should know better. And so it really came as a direct reaction to that. It wasn't the actual, the violence of the scene and, and you know, and, and it's, you know, quietly art. So, I mean, it's like really detailed and all this kind of stuff. It was super intense and, and obviously worked for the story, but it was, it was just, uh, I don't know, it just felt like a line got crossed for me personally. And then we were, the anniversary issue was coming up and Eddie was like, well, we got to do something. And I was like, I know what I want to do. And I like wrote it in like a day and a half or something. And the original script is filled with cursing and stuff. It's really funny because the we handed it in to, to Mike Carlin unedited and literally it's like, no, no. And the red is getting more and more as the pages are going on. And then when Superman gets pissed off and he starts fighting back, yes. like holes written in, in the script of the, no, this can't happen, you know, and then he gets to the end. It's like, oh, I get it. <laughs> okay, cool. You know, and just take out the curses. And so, you know. You know, but we did get Wanker in the uh, yes. cartoon, which I was very proud of. That was, <laughs> that was all right. <laughs> all the European fans are like, I, how did you do that? I'm like, oh, because I don't know. Because Americans okay. don't know what it means. They don't know what it means. And it technically is a PG-13 mm-hmm. cartoon. The Americans don't know what bugger means either. Yes. So. I know. I tried to get that one. In. I, don't think, <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that one made it. <laughs> Maybe it did. I don't remember. Man, perfect. See, yeah. that's, see, bugger is a better ending. That is a good ending. <laughs> I actually think we're going to drop this in in the middle with the comic stuff. Keep the original one. There you go. I think we should call this episode Dead Baby on a Stick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I really wish I could remember what, like, where that all started because I'm like, they were not all that evil. But then, but I do write some nasty, like, Mar- uh, Max did a, we did a one shot in a Western uh, anthology. And it was a story about like a you know real bad guy, and he killed somebody's you know a couple family, and this little kid was left, and the little kid like started following him around, and so you get the impression he's sort of out for revenge, and finally the guy can't take it, and so he he goes to the kid, and he's like, "What you know like I shot your mom and dad, what do you want?" And he's like, "Well, you sent them to heaven, and I just want to go too, so could you send me to heaven too and He's so, like, caught off guard by it. Uh, and then he shoots the kid. So he kills him so he can go to heaven. And I'm like, all right, that was one of my darker ones. <laughs> but but it crushes this guy's soul. Like, he literally right. he does it and then it literally rides off. And, you know, he's just he is now in hell and he's never going to come back. So for me, there's always at least a moral yeah. underpinning for the dead babies on a stick. But <laughs> they are in there. See, I found that once I had kids that, and I'm not... I'm a very faint-hearted person anyway. Like, mm-hmm. I don't watch horror. I don't read horror. Um, I was surprised when you said that, actually. Yeah, I can't. I, uh, still is always surprising to me. Man, people, even in college, were, I remember taking a makeup class in theater, and they're like, all right, now we're going to show all the gross stuff. Steven, come up here and model. And I'm, like, trying not to throw up and freak <laughs> out. Like, I just assumed. I'm like, I get that. And it really, I wish I'd, I, I'm very, I'm a big wuss, and I'm kind of so cool funny. with it. Yeah, I told Kirkman, I was like, I hate zombies. <laughs> I hate them with a the passion. They right. freak me out. Thanks. Right. But like once I had kids, like I'll watch something on television that I've seen before. But now I have this perspective as a parent and I'm just sobbing. I'm a right. wreck. I'm destroyed. So like, how do you keep that and being able to come up with things like that? Yeah. As a parent, tough. like that's got to be hard. It's, it's really hard. It's really hard. It's funny. I remember watching the... Uh, Bridge to Terabithia with the with the kids and my wife and I are sitting on the couch crying and they're like, "What's the matter? Like, what's your problem?" And oh, you don't understand. Oh yeah. 
I think I told you actually the the first movie we saw after my my daughter was born. It was like you know they're home for you know the wife can't leave, and finally it's like we're going to go on a date night. It's like woohoo! We went and saw the cell, and uh, and I really still like that movie. It's you know whatever. It's got its flaws, but I, I'm a sucker for spectacle, and it's mm. it looks um, unbelievable. Uh, and I love Vincent D'Onofrio and I like Jennifer Lopez. I love so, but. It was the first time I ever related to the victim in a different way. Like, you know, the, vic- the there's a, a young woman who's trapped and that's who they're trying to save. And uh, my wife and I both looked at each other like we can't watch horror movies the same way. It was a mess. And and my daughter was three weeks old or three months old or something. It was like it wasn't like she was a person, you know, like now she's like she, she actually does go out. Now I have like legit things to worry yeah. about. That was at a time where there was nothing to worry about, and uh, and I still looked at stuff differently. But I don't know with the writing. I, um, I you know, it's weird. It's uh, especially in light of you know recent tragedies and stuff like that. I mean, we do. I know I find myself butted up again sometimes. Like, oh, do I need to write that? You know, is that the kind of thing that I, <clears throat> I need to put out there? Um, and it really does depend on the story, you know, for me. And 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 if it's a story, I feel like has legitimate merit and it's not exploitive and it's not just to be gross or anything which in general i I really don't think i do even that western i was telling you about like for it was it it was supposed to be dissecting a bad guy and like we see these these types of villains and what's the line that even a villain when he crosses realizes i'm i'm screwed i really did send myself to hell kind of thing that was that was the point of that story um so i just make sure i do a little self-check on that stuff and and if it's if it's not just gratuitous, then I can I can kind of do it still. Um, and then sometimes having, in a weird way, having the kids help. Like I, I do have a horror thing that I've I've never written, and it's kind of been still bubbling in my brain. And I wrote the opening sequence. It was actually the first day of that ninety and thirty thing. And it's based. It's not based on any anything real except for the inciting incident. You know, like you know, like Freddie got burned by the all the guys. You know, by the neighborhood parents. So the story that is the 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 backstory of this horror thing, I t- is from a internet thing that went around for a really long time about a crime that happened in England, and it's a horrible, horrible crime. And writing that scene and knowing what it is, I was like, oh, yeah, like I couldn't help picturing my own kids in that scene. Yeah. And then I had to move on to something else. Like this ghost story thing is much, ultimately, much lighter and much more fantastic. Where that one was grounded in this messed up thing, and I was just like. Yeah, I I don't know if I could write that one yet. Do you think about your kids and uh, certain things? Like, of course, they can see Ben 10 and Spider-Man. But do you think there's things like, um, I have to think about what of my work are they going to read? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely not. I don't. There are things I don't let them read. They know they yeah. can't read Bad Dog. Right. Um, which And that's like a running joke, you know, they can't read Bad Dog. I read, mm-hmm. I read Giants to Claire as it was coming out, actually, okay. to my daughter. And so she was... She was seven or eight at the time. Um, that's like an all. That's basically an all ages story. Yeah, it, it essentially is. I mean, there's a little bit of it. Actually, yeah. What is it? It's five. Yeah, it's just about six years ago. So she was she was eight, and um, and four eyes. Uh, I started reading to Jack. And it's a little darker, but um, doesn't have the swearing and that kind of stuff in it. Um, so I don't worry about them looking at the legacy part of it. Uh, it's it's more of a at the moment can they handle it and then you know 
Just, Until they read the story of Manchester Black, I want to know what incited that, and then read that issue. Of yes, authority. now that if they track that down, <laughs> that's their issue. Uh, no, I was, and actually, you know, Jack, my son, and I co-wrote a comic, uh, which was really cool because um, Eddie needed a, a fill-in issue for Batman Superman, and I said, you know, I I really don't know if I have time. The simplest story I could do that would be fun is, uh, you know, who would win in a fight, Batman or Superman? but done by kids. And are you okay with that? Yeah, that'd be fun. Let's do that. And I said, all right, what if Jack co-wrote it with me? Because, you know, I'll, I'll ask him, you know, he can play, we'll just play and we'll figure it out. And, and I, we did it on text. I actually still have all the texts. And, uh, cause I happened to be out of town. I was like, all right, who's, who hits who first, you know, and Jack would, and we went back and forth and went through like the whole fight. And, uh, so he, he got a co-writing credit on it. And it was so fun because the DC gave him a contract and all this stuff. And he's probably the first person in history to say, I got a contract. You know, like he was really pumped about it. And I did I did pay him too. Oh, so okay. there's no, no child labor uh, issues there. I was but, worrying about Jackie Coogan laws. Yes, exactly. But it was it was really fun. And he's super proud of it. And it's been collected. So he's like, I have a hardcover book. And uh, and we'll go to the comic store sometimes. And um, we have this great comic store uh, out in... Uh, Williston Park that we go to and um, they have a really incredible fundraiser they do every year and uh, and they invited us out one year and he got to sign he had a uh. signing and I was just Jack's dad I was just you know off to the mm-hmm. side and it was so cool like you know he's real but but fans would come up and be like I've been trying to get into comics for years. You got a comic, like they get really pissed at him. And he's like, "Have you met? Have you met my dad?" Yeah, I'm like, "Sorry, dude, it's nepotism." What do you want me to tell you? It's like, <laughs> so pick up your pencils, your pads, your tablets. Get some paper, some typewriter. Car- typewriter. Get a fucking typewriter and learn how to type. Not an electric one. One where the the little keys switch uh, back and forth. Push really hard. Push really hard and then hit them all at uh, once and then giggle when the ribbon breaks. We were all kids in the 70s. <laughs> Jonah's, again, Jonah has no idea what we're talking about. <laughs> I know, about. dude. I know. <laughs> I'm September 79. I snuck in there. Yeah, 79. Uh, Joe Kelly is absolutely amazing. Go on his Wikipedia page. I hate saying that because even though I love Wikipedia, it's it's hard to authenticate it. But his bibliography, you can just point and grab any of the books he's written and be thrilled by. Yeah, you let uh, me borrow I Kill Giants. It's so good. I Kill Giants is amazing. It's so wonderful. Um, And check out uh, the new Avengers cartoon. Check out Ultimate Spider-Man Ben 10. Man of Action has stuff going on. And Joe's a great dude. And yeah. we have stuff going on. We do. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash goingofftrack. We have a website, goingofftrack.com. It has a little button called Donate if you want to send some dough our way to keep this running. We would appreciate it. If you don't, we're going to keep putting them out for free anyway. So be those people. That's okay. I am. I listen to so many podcasts. I don't donate a thing. We so, have uh, an iTunes page, too, where you can leave a good review for free. That would be great. You <laughs> could type up a review, and then they'll, it'll give us a rating of stars. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.